I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to Love Thy Neighbor. You can listen to the entire series right now only on Odyssey, where all of our episodes are available to binge. Before we begin, just to note that this episode contains explicit racist and anti-Semitic language and descriptions of violence. is a progressive city. In Brooklyn live peoples from the far corners of the earth, living side by side without prejudices or hate. For in Brooklyn, the brotherhood of man is a reality instead of a myth. Here the small businessman competes with his more affluent neighbor without rancor. From small stores and from horse-drawn wagons. Here in Brooklyn, democracy lives. Turns out the multi-culti Brooklyn hype goes way back, at least as far as this 1949 travel documentary. By that point, Crown Heights was at the heart of this mythic urban utopia. The West Indians and the Lubavitchers had moved in. The Brooklyn Brotherhood of Man was in full effect. So what happened? That's the thing I wondered all the time when I lived in Crown Heights. How did these two groups end up in the same place together? How did they begin to make their lives there? And how did their reality end up so far from the dream presented in that video? This is Love Thy Neighbor. I'm Collier Meyerson. Episode two, Coming to America. Um, moved here in 1907 started writing to this young uh, single lady in Jamaica. This is Judith Lovell. We're standing across from the brownstone Judith's family has owned all her life. Her daughter Ayana lives over here on the other side of the street. So you had my Aunt Annie, who we're going to, but my Aunt Bobby lived on President, was it President too? So we were literally all, my grandmother's siblings were all in one neighborhood. Wow. Yeah. That must have been so nice. So um, I could not do what I needed Not exactly. <laughs> they all knew they what all you were know. doing, so it was kind of like you it couldn't do anything. Judith's telling me about her grandfather, Ayana's great-grandfather, who moved to the neighborhood in 1950 after convincing that young single lady in Jamaica to come join him in America. He proposed in a letter. She accepted in a letter, and they met for the very first time the day before the, day before the wedding oh in goodness. Jamaica. He'd come to New York originally on a United Fruit Company boat, traveling along with a shipment of bananas. He arrived with his Bible and $50, got to work on a riverboat that sailed up and down the Hudson, rented a little place in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, worked hard, saved money. 
Judith's grandfather was part of a huge wave of Caribbean immigrants to the city. Migrants had been coming in small numbers to America from Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana, and Haiti since back in the 19th century. But as immigration policies against non-whites eased up, those numbers exploded. Around 50,000 Caribbean immigrants were living in New York City in 1930, and that number shot up by 1960. A lot of them settled in Harlem initially, and when that got too pricey, they headed to the outer boroughs. Uh, No one can afford it. (laughs) And so then there's a move to Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, because there are opportunities to own brownstones. Taisha Maddox is an assistant professor of African and African-American studies at Fordham University. Her research is focused on the migration of Anglophone Caribbean people to the U.S. If you know the geography of New York, Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights are very close to each other. And so they make the natural progression from Bed-Stuy into Crown Heights because a lot of Caribbean immigrants were interested, once they decided that they're going to settle in the United States, were really interested in the property ownership. They push into Crown Heights because there are also some really beautiful brownstones. So in the Caribbean, you own houses. You built your house. Here's Judith again, describing how her family acquired their beautiful brownstone. You know, that's what you did. So when you came here, you would have 100 jobs until you could afford to put a down payment on a house. But she found the deed to this house like years ago. We couldn't yeah. believe it was like $5,000, no. $10,000. Come on, um, don't make it so it was, cheap. I mean, but, but still, I'm that saying. is like... Next to me, you had Mr. Ramsey from Jamaica. Uh-huh. Next to Mr. Ramsey, you had Velma and Vi from Trinidad. Uh-huh. Over here, you had the Fredericks. They were from some small island, I think St. Kitts or something like that. Um, you know, a family with six kids. Taisha Maddox again. So I think that's definitely a um, carryover um, from the Caribbean and post-emancipation, this idea of having land as part of your freedom and autonomy, being able to say that this is my land that I own in this world, and no one can take that away from you. Judith took us on a walking tour of the blocks she spent her childhood on pointing out not just where the Caribbean families lived, but the Irish and Italians and Eastern European Jews, showing us the places where the kids from all those families used to hang out and play. This used to be the House of Hills um, depository for bodies. Oh. So as kids, we would always, you know, like stand across the street, not too close, (laughs) to see who they were bringing in. This was it. You know, you'd see them usher in the bodies right away. We stopped in front of a nail salon a few blocks south from the old embalming site. It used to be a candy store. Uh Going way back when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. there used to be the hangout because over there you could get bazookas for a penny, all kind of penny candy. Uh And the thing that we loved before going to school, my brother and I would stop there. He had the big vat with the sour pickles. Oh. Then we get a sour pickle and bazookas. That's a Jewish thing. He was Jewish. Oh. The memories went on like this. There was the laundromat across from the Jewish corner store, the black-owned dry cleaners, St. Gregory's Church, which she attended with her father on Sundays. As more and more Caribbeans arrived in New York, many of the women formed mutual aid societies and benevolent associations. So almost every island of the Anglophone Caribbean had their own organization. 
Here's Taisha again. Women were the majority of the members. Um, there were tons of women who were participants in these societies. And they start off as very social. So they're like social organizations. And they are welcoming to new immigrants. They're helping them like adjust, find housing, find jobs. And they sort of serve to stand in for the government as like associations or like aid for, for immigrant groups. So they had lots of card parties. They had dances, church services. And over time, those social organizations get a little more politicized. They sort of move and shift to political organizing. They start having politicians at their meetings. They start canvassing for different local politicians. They're talking more about like how you can naturalize so you can vote, how to use the voting polls, and things like that. By the late 60s, Crown Heights was the center of Caribbean life in New York. The streets were lined with Caribbean restaurants and churches. The West Indian Day Parade, which had been held in Harlem since the 1920s, moved to Crown Heights, where it's been ever since. So Labor Day is just a big um, carnival, basically. This is Deanna McIntyre. She's a Jamaican-American who was born and raised in Crown Heights and still lives in the apartment she grew up in. I talked to her there, and her dog joined us. Beautiful costumes, pretty colors, all different, all islands come together. If you are proud West Indian, say fire! Yeah! Play me some music, man! Um, and they play music and you just go crazy. You dance straight down the pathway, you know, people come out. People, they come, they sell food, they sell flags, like your, your, your country flags. You represent where you come from. Everybody! That's all we get. You know, you have Thanksgiving parade, Macy's parade, the LGTB, you know, everybody has a parade. That's like all we have. I was born and grew up here in Crown Heights. Right. Where we are right now, 1956. I was born to two Russian-born parents who came to the United States after World War II. So I lived there, I was born and bred and lived here my entire life. I mean, in different homes. Simon Jacobson right is a rabbi. He lives in a three-story brownstone in Crown Heights. The walls are lined with books. There's a grand piano and a huge dining room table with nine chairs. But he says sometimes... 20 or 30 people squeeze in on Friday nights for Shabbat. He wears a long gray beard and a black kippah on his head. There's a photo of the Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, on the wall. There are also family photos, his kids, his grandkids, and his parents. They married here. My, my mother arrived maybe 1948. Okay. And they lived on a farm in New Jersey, then oh, wow. ultimately came to New York, in Vineland, New Jersey. Uh, my father came in 1951, lived first in Toronto, but then moved to New York. The Lubavitch, originally based in Belarus, began settling in Brooklyn in the 1940s. And in the 80s, Simmons' father was buying this house, a few blocks from Judith's grandfather's. In a deeper sense, the Lubavitch community largely came to the U.S., as Holocaust refugees. Henry Goldschmidt is a cultural anthropologist. He studied the community for his book, Race and Religion Among the Chosen People of Crown Heights. In the early 40s, when it was still possible to leave Europe um, before the Shoah, the the genocide, 
of the Holocaust, or or in the 50s, you know, people who had survived the Holocaust and been in, you know, displaced persons camps and found their way to the U.S. So it was a deeply traumatized community that had put a huge amount of energy into rebuilding in Crown Heights. At the time, their leader, or rabbi, was Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, and he was determined to create a new home for his community, the Chabad Lubavitch. When the Rebbe moved to Brooklyn, the Chabad Lubavitch purchased a three-story Gothic-style brick building with heavy oak doors at 770 Eastern Parkway. It cost them $30,000. They renovated it and added offices, a yeshiva, which is a school, and a shul, or a place of worship. When the Rebbe died in 1950, his son-in-law, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, became the seventh Rebbe of the Lubavitch dynasty. For a little while, this one building was enough space for the Lubavitchers to pray, attend class, celebrate holidays, and meet with the Rebbe. But as the community grew, they started to use the ambulance parking lot next door for different kinds of activities. And in 1959, they began construction on a more permanent building in the lot. Eventually, this building would hold thousands of people and connect to the original structure at 770. Every Sunday, the Rebbe would stand at the front of his home in the hall between his office and the secretary's office, leaning on his table with stacks of $1 bills. And people from all over would come to visit him. It didn't matter if you were Jewish or not. After waiting in line, you'd have a minute or two to introduce yourself to the Rebbe and tell him about something you were going through, something you were praying for, and he'd share some wisdom. Then he'd hand you a $1 bill advising you to go do good with the dollar by giving it to somebody else. For a while, Crown Heights was a genuine immigrant melting pot, just like you read about in the history books. It was Irish. No, it was predominantly white, you know, Jewish, Jewish. not Hasidic, but Jewish and Irish. And you had maybe about 10 or 15, you know, Caribbean families um, with children. In the early 50s, the neighborhood was 89% white. And then, by the end of the decade, that started to change. Fast. White flight was transforming cities and suburbs across the country. Redlining and predatory real estate tactics initiated by powerful white politicians and homeowners made it so that Black folks weren't able to move to the suburbs. And in the end, it boiled down to one simple American equation. Crown Heights in Brooklyn is a changing urban neighborhood. Blacks moved in, whites moved out. And they moved with urgency. By 1970, Crown Heights was 70% Black. But Crown Heights was different from other rapidly changing cities like Detroit or Philadelphia, or even other neighborhoods in New York City, because of one key exception. But in Crown Heights, another group of whites moved in and has stayed. They are the Lubavitcher Hasidim, a sect of devoutly religious Jews which originated in Russia. And it was really just the Lubavitch Hasidic community that made a very conscious decision to stay in the neighborhood. Anthropologist Henry Goldschmidt again. This was, you know, in response to a call from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who made a big speech saying, you know, we're staying. This is our neighborhood. This is where we've put down roots after the Holocaust. We're not leaving. It wasn't just that he worried about uprooting his community. He actively didn't want to abandon other vulnerable people in Crown Heights. 
And he made a point of telling his community not to fear their neighbors. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was the leader of the community who lived on Eastern Parkway, was very much against any type of panicking and running. Here's Simon Jacobson again, describing his own family's decision to remain in Crown Heights. So those so many whites, including uh, Jewish whites, ran, he said, no, we are here. We're not going anywhere. We're here. There's no attitude. My parents never considered, oh, let's look for a home in the Long Island or some suburb. So by the end of the 1960s, you've got these two immigrant communities, Jews who fled to America after the Holocaust and Black Caribbeans who came here looking for a better life. And now they're living side by side in this one neighborhood in Brooklyn. When I was growing up, stories of Black and Jewish alliances, the sense of a kind of shared path, this was all drummed into my head. The most important idea in Judaism, I was told, was tikkun olam, Hebrew for repairing the world. I was taught about Martin Luther King speaking out on behalf of oppressed Soviet Jews and about Rabbi Abraham Heschel marching alongside Dr. King. On Passover, every year, my family, like Jews around the world, retells the story of our own escape from enslavement in the land of Egypt. We believed in the possibility of interracial alliance. My parents' own marriage looked from the outside like a romantic embodiment of all the civil rights ideals I and secular Jews in my world were raised to believe in. As Abraham Heschel put it, Seen in the light of our religious tradition, the Negro problem is God's gift to America, the test of our integrity, a magnificent spiritual opportunity. But that wasn't really how it played out in 1960s Crown Heights. This is the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York City. This is a crime-menaced neighborhood. There's this short-lived news program from the mid-60s called Survival. It's narrated by James Whitmore, an actor from the golden age of Hollywood. He's speaking over a shot of a young woman standing outside of a subway station at night, lit only by a pair of street lamps. And for the moment, this girl waits frightened and alone. But there is something Crown Heights residents can do to allay their fears. The report is about a group called the Maccabees, named for biblical Jewish heroes. These Maccabees are a new self-appointed community patrol group formed by the Lubavitchers in Crown Heights in 1964. She has summoned a citizen safety patrol group, a specially assigned escort, to see her safely home. I know my friends and I feel much safer when we walk the streets at night. We know that if we do come home at a halfway unreasonable hour, we can always call on them to walk us into the building and upstairs. I feel it's a wonderful thing. As white people fled Crown Heights, tax dollars and public resources went with them. Crime went up like it did in cities all over America. And that's when the Maccabees came on the scene. Charlotte Lipsick, schoolteacher, met at death, returning from an evening at the movie. Charlotte Lipsick, alone in the streets of Crown Heights at night, could have called on the Maccabee patrols to see her home. She did not, and she is dead. Charlotte Lipsick was a beloved teacher in the Lubavitch community. Her violent rape and murder stunned the entire neighborhood and perpetuated existing fears of anti-Semitism. The suspect in the murder was a black teenage boy. A police composite from the Daily News could not possibly look more generic. Shaved head, full lips, a slight grimace. It's hard to watch this report and not hear the message loud and clear. When they say they're afraid of crime, they're saying they're afraid of their black neighbors. What are people to do? 
their wives and children are afraid to walk the streets because of muggers and rapists. Rabbi Samuel Schrago was a founder of the Crown Heights Maccabees. What are people to do when the sanctity of their own homes are being violated by thieves who break in the still of the night? Are they just to wait and wait? I say no. I say they must act in their own interest. The special goes on like this for another 15 minutes or so, the music swelling the whole way through. It describes how the Maccabees acquired more volunteers, not all of them Lubavitchers, including a few black residents who were also concerned about crime in the neighborhood. The group also got more patrol cars and walkie-talkies, and they start to coordinate more closely with the NYPD. Here's Rabbi Schrega talking with a captain from the 71st Precinct. We feel like a part of the police department, really, you know? <laughs> uh, maybe we ought to talk about uniforms. <laughs> the Maccabee video does include a detractor as well, though. Around 13 minutes in, a middle-aged black woman raises a note of caution. We aren't told her name or her profession or anything about her, but what she said, it stuck with me. Because it was more prescient than anyone could have known at the time. There are people that know more about this than I do. If they think it's the answer, maybe it'll work. But uh, I don't see how you can just grab a lot of people and say you're going to patrol areas. Because after a while, it'll get to the place where the white people will say, well, you can't come into my neighborhood. And the Negroes will say, well, you can't come to my neighborhood. So you're going to still have race bias. It's still going to breed more trouble, more discontent. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. That's why I'm here today, is to talk to the rabbis and to yourself, thinking we're going to take additional steps to provide uh, security and uh, peace for the community, the Crown Heights community. This is New York Mayor John Lindsay. It's November 1968, and he's come out to 770 to meet with Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson. It is a test case. Yeah. It's not only for New York, 
j'ai trouvé Tuskis pour le for United States, pour many cities, and maybe in the world uh, in general. That's true. We have a special opportunity to be an example to the world, the Rebbe is saying. Unrest is spreading in the world around us. Anti-Semitic crimes, vandalism, a firebombing, truly violent hate crimes occurred with relative frequency in Brooklyn. And like a lot of local religious leaders, the Rebbe was putting voice to those concerns on behalf of his community. Politicians understood that meeting with the Rebbe was a good way to get the Lubavitch community to pay attention to what they had to say. It means that if you are doing something for our community, that you are doing at the same time a good service for all New York. This is less than a year later. The Rebbe's meeting with the president of the city council to talk more about crime in Crown Heights. On this particular weekend, I stated that we were catering, unfortunately, to an illegal minority who were violating all of the rights, civil, criminal, religious, and of the majority. Both the Rebbe and the city council president agree that what's needed are stricter judges and a clear no-tolerance message from City Hall. Lubavitchers are extremely proud of the Rebbe's views on crime prevention and harsh prison sentencing. He spoke many times about the need for education in prison as a restorative measure and not as a punitive one, an ideal that could never really match the reality of our current justice system. The Rebbe's influence extended beyond policing in the community, though. The organizing power of Lubavitchers meant that they'd get all sorts of political spoils, things like street closures on holidays, and they would benefit from discretionary funds for neighborhood renovations. I think it's important to remember that in this period of New York City and other American cities were all like starved for resources and in a certain sense like fighting over scraps. The flip side of the Rebbe's municipal success is that mostly none of it extends to their Caribbean neighbors. All of those little benefits from the city go only to the Lubavitchers. It was more of us over here than, than them, but they had more power because like we never could have a block party. Deanna McIntyre grew up in Crown Heights. Her parents came from Jamaica. She lived on a block mixed with both Lubavitch and Caribbean Americans. And Brooklyn, and New York City in general, is famous for its block parties. But in order to have one, officially, you need your neighbor's approval to close down the street. We have the biggest, widest block. We never got a block party because they would never sign a petition or they never wanted. It wasn't just that they couldn't get petitions signed. It was other things, too. Seemingly small things. But it all started to add up. Deanna says that if they're being too loud, their Jewish neighbors would make a call and shut them down. So, like, certain things we would do is, like, we just put the music on, you know, somebody's porch, like, and they would let it go. But then, of course, out of, they tired of the music certain time. You, they special police come and just shut it down, because I don't know how they just come on the spot. So that's me. When you say special police, We like, call them the special police because they come quick <laughs> for them. Like, we say they have a different number from us because... <laughs> You know, they hear in the blink of an eye, they want you to move your car from their driveway. They, and if we want someone to move a car, like, we got we to wait, but theirs is on the spot. So I believe there's a special police station just for them a number or something. But when it's their time to pray or have those things outside and they move, it's no problem. It can go on to whatever time, you understand? But if we would like to have the same kind of celebration, even trying to get permission from them when they don't need permission from us. So it's like, those are the things that's not fair. To be clear, there is no special phone number for the Hasidim. 
Some might even take offense at that suggestion. But the idea of that number, it comes from a feeling that different rules apply to Caribbean Americans than to Lubavitchers. In the mid-70s, a new political fight sprang up in Crown Heights. It was over the topic of district zoning. Basically, the Lubavitchers, who shared a district with the Caribbean Americans, wanted to divide it into two separate districts. Specifically, they appealed to this group within the city government called the Board of Estimate. The BOE consisted of basically every top elected official, and it had all kinds of power, like approving the city's budgets and determining district maps. Lubavitchers were successful in their appeal, and in 1976, the Board of Estimate drew a line across Eastern Parkway, splitting one district into two. It seemed to favor the Lubavitch community even more. This is sensitive territory. The idea that Jews have access to secret levers of power is one of the oldest and most persistent anti-Semitic canards in history. But at the same time, a lot of Caribbean Americans in the neighborhood felt like their Lubavitch neighbors were gaining political benefits at their expense. A leading Black pastor in Crown Heights at the time called it a sad day for America. We've seen raw racism here, he said. The district as it stood already received a limited amount of the city's resources. But splitting it up meant that the Caribbean community would now get an even smaller slice of the pie. If you are the district leader, you know, they gave, they gave out jobs. They controlled where money flowed in terms of state grants. Mark Winston Griffith is the executive director of a local activist organization in Crown Heights called the Brooklyn Movement Center. He's a community organizer and journalist who's worked in Crown Heights nearly all his life. They determined what nonprofit organizations existed. They determined how housing resources, education resources, and other kind of local resources were distributed. They determined, you know, what your relationship was with the local police department, with the local education system. So these were all important things. On one level, it looked like the same old racist policies. A white community getting preferential treatment at the expense of their Black neighbors. But the reality in Crown Heights was a little more complicated than that because of the particular histories of these two groups. The Caribbean Americans living there don't entirely identify with other Black Americans. Their relation to whiteness, for one thing, isn't exactly the same. It's not to say that Racism didn't exist in the Caribbean because it absolutely does exist and it did happen. Here's Professor of African and African American Studies, Taisha Maddox, again. But it's a difference when you come from a society that's majority Black, where you are in the majority. Even if you don't have most of the power, you're still just in the majority. So you would not be, it wouldn't be weird for you to see Black people who are lawyers or doctors or holding high positions. Whereas when they come to the United States, they are definitely in the minority. And I think they are shocked how systematic the racism is and how structural the racism is, as opposed to in the Caribbean. And I think that's a major difference. It was not a racial category or an ethnic category. It was a religious category. Miriam Levy-Heim is in her 30s. She grew up in the Lubavitch community in Crown Heights. Her family are Iranian Jews. So I think the idea that Jews are white would not have made sense as a kid. 
like we didn't do the things that white people do in America. Like we like casseroles. I don't even know what a casserole is. You know, I've never had a casserole. The funny thing about Crown Heights is it's not just the Afro-Caribbeans who get caught up in a binary that doesn't reflect their sense of self. Many Labavagers don't think of themselves as white either. America has been a place of promise for my family. You know, we escaped persecution and oppression and came here uh, where we can live openly as Jews, um, thrive with the protection of the state, which is like kind of crazy when you consider that from, you know, the very long lens of Jewish history. And that protection of the state is crucial for Jews in America. But for visibly religious Jews like the Lubavitchers, everyday anti-Semitism is a bigger, often unavoidable part of daily life. For Lubavitchers, almost every aspect of life is defined by Judaism. The way they dress, the foods they eat, the rituals they keep, the patterns of their week. It's a highly particular existence. You know, it's not just that Blacks and Jews in the neighborhood are different. Anthropologist Henry Goldschmidt again. It's that they have different understandings of their difference. They don't agree on how they're different. In my own household growing up, there were times when this idea, this misunderstanding of their difference, created real tension between my parents. My dad, a lawyer often fighting against racism, didn't understand what it felt like to experience it. He's Jewish, and he's often talked about how his Jewishness informs his work, the history of marginalization, of being cast out, and the Jewish mandate of tikkun olam, to repair the world. But still, he's viewed by the world as white. I remember another incident where I was so upset with your dad. My mom's talking about the time she went to look in an apartment around when I was born. When she got there, though, and they saw that she was Black, they told her the apartment was no longer available. It was one of those times when I just, I just could not talk because I was so furious. And I knew this. I knew it in my bones that this was discrimination. So, of course, what do I do? I come home to my civil rights lawyer, husband, and I say to him, this is what happened to me today, and I am furious about it. I know what this is, and I want you to do something about it. And he referred me to a friend. Well, wait, wait, wait. Now, I will give you the explanation for that. You always have some kind of... When I told you to call Dick Bellman. Dick Bellman was the civil rights lawyer in New York City with an expertise in housing discrimination par excellence. I could sense my mom's anger at him stemmed more from his inability to truly understand her embarrassment and sadness, to understand her experience. Instead, he just jumped straight into recommending a friend of his, an admittedly excellent lawyer, to help her case. There are always going to be moments that he doesn't understand, that he can't quite understand, because of his whiteness. And parsing that out is complicated.
There's this essay that James Baldwin wrote for the New York Times Magazine in 1967. It has this provocative title, Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. And in it, Baldwin tries to explain why it is that Black people have come to resent Jews, who until only recently had been thought of as a great ally of Black people. He's writing about his neighborhood of Harlem. He starts off writing about how many of the local proprietors, landlords, butchers, grocers, were Jewish. Not all of these white men were cruel. On the contrary, I remember some who were certainly as thoughtful as the bleak circumstances allowed, but all of them were exploiting us, and that was why we hated them. But to Baldwin, it wasn't just about everyday disputes. It was the larger sense that in America, Jewish suffering was recognized, while Black suffering was not. The Jew can be proud of his suffering, or at least not ashamed of it. His history and his suffering do not begin in America, where Black men have been taught to be ashamed of everything, especially their suffering. It's not Judaism that Baldwin sees as the problem. It's the Jewish people's proximity to whiteness. In the American context, the most ironical thing about Negro anti-Semitism is that the Negro is really condemning the Jew for having become an American white man. Baldwin goes on. They arrived here out of the same effort the American Negro is making. They wanted to live, and not tomorrow, but today. Now, since the Jew is living here, like all the other white men living here, he wants the Negro to wait. And the Jew sometimes, often, does this in the name of his Jewishness, which is a terrible mistake. He has absolutely no relevance in this context as a Jew. His only relevance is that he is white and values his color and uses it. He is singled out by Negroes, not because he acts differently from other white men, but because he doesn't. He is playing in Harlem the role assigned him by Christians long ago. He is doing their dirty work. When I first read that last line, it stopped me dead in my tracks. What Baldwin was saying was that Jews weren't exactly white when they first arrived in America, but that they became white over time. And they did so in the most American way there is, by engaging in the anti-Black racism that many see as foundational to this country. Agree with him or not, and honestly, I'm not sure whether I do. What Baldwin is describing here is a point of view that would shape the relationship between Black and Jewish communities for decades to come. Next time on Love Thy Neighbor, New York in the 80s. And the statistics this year are really grim. Murders on the streets of Crown Heights. Victor Rhodes has been in a coma most of the week. And a new mayor with a new vision. To win again tomorrow, he must put together that same coalition of black and white voters. Takes over a city in turmoil. I thought that Mayor Dinkins was the sweetest man. Love Thy Neighbor is hosted by me, Collier Meyerson. The show was written by Noah Remnick and myself. Jess Jupiter is our producer, and Justine Daum is our managing producer. Production assistance and research by Yinka Rickford Angwin. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Joel Lovell is our editor. 
fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Original music is by Will Johnson. Our engineers are Davey Sumner and Jason Richards. Our show art, which includes a David Burns photo from the Associated Press, was designed by Kurt Courtney, Josefina Francis, and Lauren Vieira at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Leela Day, Jasmine Hughes, Mordecai Lightstone, Ike Shreese Kandaraja, Zandra Ellen, Grace Chen, Moira Curran, and Khadim Jang. And to Guillermo Brown for voicing James Baldwin's Negroes are anti-Semitic because they're anti-white. Legal Services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshot, Granderson Day Rocher, and Katie Ali Mohammadi, and Vernissa Washington at Donaldson Califf Perez. This show is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. Our executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weisberman. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode of Love Thy Neighbor, you can listen to the next episode and the rest of the series right now exclusively on Odyssey. Find all the podcasts and audio that matter to you. Download Odyssey from the App Store or Google Play today. Thanks for listening.